Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 9 and 10 as we're headed through this evening. And um, we have now come to the second major division of this epistle. Romans chapter 1 through 8 is doctrinal. Romans 9 through 11 is dispensational. Romans 12 through 16 is duty. Uh, The first eight chapters of Romans will emphasize faith. Chapters 9 through 11, will be in 11 on Sunday, uh, emphasizes hope. And then chapters 12 through 16 emphasizes love. Uh, There's one other way to view Romans. The first section deals with salvation. If we would cut it in half in the second section with... um, regeneration, and the last with service, or segregation. All right, Uh, we're only going to get to this first verse here um, in 9. Well, let's let's read through 1 through 5. Paul says, I tell you the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. There's a whole Bible study right there. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, from my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Each one of those is a study within itself of whom the fathers and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is over all uh, the eternal blessed God, amen. So in these first five verses, we have um, two false doctrines that I want to touch on. Um, uh, The first one is, as we get to 11 on Sunday, let's go there first. 11 verse 1, come back here a couple times. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham and the seed of Benjamin. Okay, first false doctrine that I'd like to point out is um, that of the Jehovah Witnesses. Because they believe if you want to turn there, you can to Revelation 7. In Revelation 7, the first couple of verses says that the Lord is going to cause um, um, four angels to hold the four corners so that the wind will stop. Now, I, f- I find that interesting because for the first three and a half years, according to Revelation 11, we find that I believe them to be Elijah and Moses, Elijah for sure, that it says it did not rain in the days of their prophecy. So after we're raptured, the tribulation will begin. God always leaves a witness, and so we are the witness, as we'll see on on Sunday, for a period of time. But then arrive the two witnesses, It tells us in Revelation 11, verse 3 and 4, 
that their ministry is going to last for 1,260 days. That's exactly three and a half years. And it tells us it will not rain um, for that period of time. And I always like to bring up the question, has that ever happened before? And the answer is yes, and it's the same Elijah that confronted Ahab, and uh, he, te- he told him, he says, it's not going to rain again until I say so. And um, not only does Jesus, but also James tells us that Elijah was an ordinary guy, just like you and me, but when he prayed that it wouldn't rain, it didn't rain for the space of three and a half years. So yes, it has happened before. The reason I believe the Lord allowed it to happen before is because I just told you that's going to happen again. And um, Revelation 7 tells us the first couple of verses, he's going to stop the wind. Well, what happens when the wind stops blowing? Well, the rain cycle stops. We need that. We had some big storms coming through as I was watching the radar tonight, and I was wondering where, which way the wind's blowing, because <laughs> some of them were looking pretty dark and desperate. But Jehovah Witnesses, when they come knocking at your door, um, will tell you that they are the 144,000. And I always like to say, really? Uh, how about if we go to, uh, I'll tell them, how about if we go to that, that chapter? And let, let's read what it says there. And it says 12,000 from the, the tribe of of um, uh, Judah and so on. It names all of them except Dan. Dan's lost out of the list. But you have the 12 tribes there, and it says 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe. You add them up, and I says, you Jehovah Witnesses take the Bible literally, right? And then they say, yeah, okay. Okay, it says Jews there and tribes. And then I said, now can I take you to Romans chapter 11? And they said, well, the reason that we're the 144,000 is God has rejected Israel because they rejected him, and we now have taken their place. Okay, I said, all right, let's go, and I'll have them, I give them their own Bible, and I said, now let's go to Romans 11, verse 1. Read it out loud to me, I'll say. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. And I say, stop. Read it again. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. Stop. Read it again. <laughs> and um, when they figure out after about 10 or 15 minutes that I know the Bible better than they do, then they want to leave. And I said, no, I can't let you leave yet. And um, because I know you're going to go to my next door neighbor's house. And I can't have that, so I'm going to have to go along with you. And uh, I'll follow them right down the street until they decide they're not going to stay in this neighborhood any longer. So the Jehovah Witnesses believe that they're the 144,000. Why? Because they've uh, Israel rejected Jesus, replacement theology, and the promises that belong to Israel now belong to the Jehovah Witness. All right, false doctrine number one. False doctrine number two is called um, dual covenant theology. How many of you have heard the term of dual covenant theology? I'll just read a, a brief description of it. 
And basically what it is is God has one covenant for Israel and one covenant for the church. A dual covenant theology is a belief that teaches Jews and Christians have separate covenants with God in regards to eternal salvation. Jews can go to heaven by keeping the law of Moses because of the covenant between Abraham and God expressed in the Old Testament, while Gentiles must convert to Christianity. Now turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter, well let's see, Galatians chapter three, verse 23, and we'll pick it up in verse 23. It says, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterwards be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor, or our school teacher, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and then this verse here, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither male, uh, slave or free, there is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So, Dual covenant theology tells you that God has one covenant with Israel and one covenant with uh, the church. This blows it out of the water. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Uh, There is neither slave nor free. Uh, There's no respecter of people, black or white or whatever. Um, If you're in Christ, then... um, uh, that is what makes makes us one. We are one in Christ, both the Jew and and the Gentile. So um, here I'm going to name names. Actually, uh, John Hagee is is pretty spot on with his Bible teaching, except he is a strong supporter of dual covenant theology, and. Um, um, I think he's in Texas, if I remember right. But he is one of the one he carries a lot of influence. He has a lot of people watching him and following him. But you need to know that he holds to uh, the dual covenant theology. Let's go back to Romans 9. And then we read here again, if dual covenant theology was true, then Paul would not be making the statement that he himself would go to hell if it meant his Jewish friends who are trying to keep the law through the Old Testament covenants. He said, I would do that for my kinsmen. And this is where I always like to say, I love you guys, (laughs) but I'm not going there. (laughs) Again, I quote Dylan from time to time at this point, says he, in one of his Christian albums, he says, I'm not going to hell for anybody. And, um, and yet Paul actually made that statement. But I like verse two. It's heavy on his heart. We should, we should be looking at friends and loved ones that aren't saved, and they should be a burden. 
when you, when you look at them. He says, I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart because um, they have this outward what, religiosity, but inwardly, it's not by faith. So again, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, but uh, it's faith in Christ that brings that about. We do have, there are not very many, but we do have some messianic Jewish believers, and they're born-again Christians. But they will call Jesus Yeshua. And um, the largest um, group of them is actually in the Galilee area by Tiberias. Matter of fact, I know one of the guys very well who's one of the leaders in the group. And he says there's about 12, 1,400 of us in the Tiberias area that are involved in a messianic fellowship. Um, but they're not, they're, they're simply, you can be German and become a Christian. Well, you be, can be Jewish and become a Christian too. Except they like to call themselves messianic Jews or what I like to call a completed Jew. And we'll get into that uh, a little bit farther. All right, let's go from 6 to 16. We find then, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of, of Israel, nor are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham. So in other words, just because you were born a Jew, that doesn't make you necessary the seed of your promise. And then he quotes, in Isaac your seed shall be called. All right, every time we have an Old Testament scripture quoted in the New Testament, you want to just take note of it, and here's one of them. And he's gonna use Isaac as an example. That is, those who are children of the flesh These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise as counted as the seed. And um, for this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor have done any good or evil, so this is pre-birth, uh, the purpose of God according to the election might stand. Now on Sunday, um, we talked about that I am I am persuaded. And we went through the whole thing of predestination and um, how the Calvinists use predestination as their cornerstone scripture that you are predestined and you don't have nothing to say about it. And... Um, if you're predestined to heaven and there's nothing you can do about it because God predestined you, that means also he has to predestinate people to hell. I think I quoted Dave um, Hunt's book at this time, What Love Is This? You know, that uh, sums up the whole thing. By the way, did you like my Calvinist t-shirt that I had? Some Lives Matter? No, I'm not giving it away. I'm keeping it. You never know when you're going to run into a Calvinist, you know. So what we're talking about in this section here is God's sovereignty and that he can pick and choose 
but he picks and chooses. Again, we went and explained the right teaching when it comes to predestination. According to his foreknowledge, he predestinated you. That's what we read later on. Well, what does that mean? Well, there's nothing God doesn't know. He knew that I would exercise my free will to accept him. But it's according to his foreknowledge. He knew that I would do that. And then when I quoted Psalm 139, David said, all, all my days were written in your book, even before I was born. And yet, David lived a life of free will. And uh, there was none greater, but then again, it was probably, we often mention that um, the uh, adultery with Bathsheba and the cover-up with killing Uriah the Hittite were his worst sins. No, only one person died. That was the baby. That died with that one. Uh, His biggest sin, because he wrote 72 of the 150 Psalms, was don't trust in chariots, don't trust in men, don't trust in anybody but the Lord. So his last act as king of Israel was to have his general go out and say, I want you to number the tribes. I want to know how many men we got that are able to fight in war. And um, it's either Joab or Abner, I get the two mixed up. But his right-hand man, he, he said, not a good idea, David, don't do it. And they argued about it, and it says David prevailed. And so he went out, comes back with this list, 175,000 from this tribe, 180,000 from this tribe, 85,000 from this tribe, and he numbered them, and soon as David heard the number, it says his heart was smitten. Because this is David talking. This is the guy who's telling everybody else to trust in the Lord, and don't put your trust in chariots. Don't put your trust in men. Put your trust in the Lord. And the Lord was really upset And the angel of the Lord was coming over Jerusalem with a sword. David saw it. And the Lord sent a plague and 70,000 people died. Not just one. The baby died when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. But here's 70,000 people that were dead. You know, that's a pretty harsh judgment. Well, basically David is undoing everything he said he believed in by numbering the people. He knew he blew it. And the Lord was upset, and the Lord sent an angel, and 70,000 people were killed. And right before all of Jerusalem um, was destroyed, David cried out, says, no, not the people, Lord, take, take me. And so the Lord withheld the hand of the angel, otherwise, bye-bye Jerusalem. It wouldn't be there. So what we're looking at here is his sovereignty. We left off... Um, Verse 11, for the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil that the purposes of God according to the election might stand not of works but of him who calls. It was said to her the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved but Esau I have hated. Well, Esau was the firstborn. And uh, it says here, the older shall serve the younger. And, um, you know, Jacob was quite a trickster. And he tricked his way with that, um, getting the birthright. 
If you all know the story, I hope, of Esau just came in from hunting and he was hungry. And J- Jacob had, had the pot of porridge. And he said, I'll give you some, but you gotta give me your birthright. What good's my birthright if I started this? Give me some soup. And, um, but here, we're saying this was all God's sovereign plan. He said, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. The character of, of Esau, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God for making such a statement? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whoever I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whoever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows the mercy. Okay, so I want to turn to, these verses 6 through 16, to the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, chapter 1, the first couple verses. Malachi 1, again, connecting the Old Testament with the New. Malachi 1, verses 1 through 3. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountain and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. And it was because of um, um, God's sovereign, again, knowing the character, what they would turn into, who they would be, We can go back to Romans. And here, Paul is picking this verse out of Malachi and applying it um, here and comparing Jacob and Esau, loving the one and hating the other. Now in verses 17 to 29, um, I'm gonna stop when we get down to 27 and get a little sidetracked here. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, even for the same purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be declared in all the earth. So here we're told that the the Lord is raising up um, Pharaoh, but he also raised up Nebuchadnezzar, both Gentile kings. What's interesting about these two kings is Joseph became the number two man under Pharaoh in Egypt. Next to Pharaoh, there was none greater because he could interpret the dreams. But it, isn't it interesting that Nebuchadnezzar um, uh, raised up Daniel to be what? The second most powerful man in the whole world next to Nebuchadnezzar. And I find that interesting. So the Lord raises up Gentile kings to do his bidding, even the unsaved. Verse 18, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills. In whom he wills, he hardens. Uh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Uh, You will say to me then, what does he still find fault for? Who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to answer God? 
And here again, we get into this place of God is sovereign and he makes certain things his purpose and his will, then we have no right to, to say, well, that ain't fair. Well, why are you doing that? That doesn't seem like the right thing to do. And we're told here, who do you think you are? And Dwight's translation. Oh, will the thing form say to the, him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? You can make a beautiful vase out of clay. Um, You can also make a garbage can out of it. Same piece of clay. One for honor and one for dishonor. What if God wanted to show his wrath and make his power known and endure with much long suffering? The vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That's what the tribulation period is all about. It's going to be his wrath poured out on those who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, Just a personal note on we're the lump of clay and what we want to do is be pliable. Is that a good way to put it? Uh, Let the... um, What's the old song? Bend me, shape me, any way you want to. (laughs) Who came up with that one? But the idea was, don't let the Lord work and make you into what he wants you to be. You're the one that's on the potter's wheel and he's fashioning you. Don't resist. Remain pliable. Why? That he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessel of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And he says to Hosea, all right, here we are in the Old Testament again. Hosea, um, verse 110, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, uh, there they will be called sons of the living God. And so he is re- referring to a people, that would be you and I, that are not his people, They're not, we're not Jewish people. And then he quotes Isaiah. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. In other words, there's millions and millions of um, Jews. But he talks about this remnant. And here's where I want to get just a little bit sidetracked here. The remnant will be saved. And if you go to 11.5, we'll be there on Sunday. Even so, then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Remember, all the early church were, were Jews. Remember, Cornelius was the first Gentile that got saved and nobody could believe it. All the disciples were Jews. And, um, and yet he makes the distinction here um, in verse five that there's a remnant that he is going to work with. Now, when the rapture takes place, and if you have Elijah and Moses preaching the gospel, 
Um, if I were to pick two people that would blow the Jewish people's minds away, remember that it was Moses and Elijah that appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration? What do you suppose that meeting was all about? That was, that was a meeting about future events of, I believe, what they were going to be doing. It provoked the disciples on the way down. Say, why, did the, why does the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees say that Elijah must come first? And the Lord says, Elijah has come first. And they did with him what he didn't want to do. And then it goes on to say the disciples understood that he was referring to John the Baptist. We read that the spirit of the Lord that was upon Elijah was the same spirit that rested on John the Baptist who we're told is the greatest prophet that ever lived. Of all the Old Testament prophets, there's none greater than John the Baptist. So if you have these two guys preaching the gospel, we're gonna have revival during this first three and a half years big time. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 11 and talk about this remnant. And let's talk about the Jews that died before Let's talk about the Jews that died before Jesus came. Let's pick it up in verse, oh, these are Jews starting with Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah. And then it tells us in verse 13, the list goes on, and there's Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and so on and so forth. But the reason I take you here, it says, that they were Old Testament Jews. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. Well, the biggest promise that the Lord has given to us was his spirit that lives in us. It's called the comforter. But having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They, they believed God's promise. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better that is a heavenly country, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So chapter 11 of Hebrews is uh, those who were holding on to a promise that God had, had given to them. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter four. And a little, little sidetrack here with what happened to these guys when they died. Well, we're told in Ephesians four, picking up verse seven, It says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, okay, this is a reference to Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. When he went up, he sent the Holy Spirit back down, and we call that Pentecost. We'll be going there a little bit on Sunday. But then it clarifies a little bit in verse 9 and gives us a little bit more detail and tells us, now this, now this 
he ascended, but what does it mean that he also first, before he ascended, he descended into the lower parts of the earth, and he who descended is the one who ascended above all in the heavens that he might fulfill, that he might fill all things. So we read here that he led captivity captives. All right, I'm not gonna have you turn there, but I'm just going to quote um, um, the story, it's not a parable, of the rich man and Lazarus. Everybody with me? Okay, so the rich man died, and he was um, buried, and he went to hell. That's where he found himself. Um, There's a lot of people today that believe when you die, you die. It's all over. And when people have no hope, there's a lot of people that don't have hope today, and we all all know here that um, I can't go anywhere without seeing fire engines and cars and I know that something bad happened. It's, it's not a fire that they're going to. And people are, are, are losing their hope. So when you die, it's not over. This man was fully aware. He had a mind and he was in, there was this other chamber called Abraham's bosom. And he was actually able to communicate with Abraham. And he said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus over here with some water so he can just put some on my tongue because I'm, I'm in torture and pain in these flames. So number one, he could speak through this chasm. And Abraham actually answers him back and says, I can't. You can't come over here and we can't come over there. Now, Abraham's bosom was where Lazarus was. And it's interesting um, that all of a sudden he has a concern for his five brothers. He says, well, we at least send Lazarus back up there so he can witness literally to, I have five brothers, and warn them about this place. You see, he has this awareness, this consciousness. I wonder if he ever had a burden for his family before but now that he's there now that he knows he could do absolutely nothing to change the situation then he says well can you at least if 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 they if my brother sees somebody raised from the dead they'll believe and what did Abraham say he said no even if one raises from the dead they still won't believe they have what Moses and the prophets they have the word of God And he said, if they won't believe this, they're not going to believe even though one is raised from the dead. You know that there was a lot of people that got saved when Mary and Martha and Lazarus was raised from the dead? You know there was another group of people that were um, scribes and the Pharisees? And said, we got a problem. We not only have to kill Jesus, but now we're going to have to kill Lazarus too. Because he's a walking, living witness. So, Did raising Lazarus from the dead cause them to become believers? No. Cause them to want to go out and kill Lazarus because he's a living, walking, literal witness. Okay, from there, we read again in Ephesians that before he ascended, he descended. 
Well, what is Jesus doing in hell? Well, it says he preached to the spirits who were there. And I I believe that at that time, he was explaining the fullness of the gospel to the righteous that were there. And then if you're taking notes, it's Matthew chapter 27, verse 52, that tells us that when Jesus arose from the grave, it says the graves were opened in Jerusalem. And many people came out of the graves and appeared to many. Well, what in the world is that all about? Graves opening up, and then it clarifies it, but it says, after his resurrection. Why? Because Jesus is the first fruit. He's the first one to come back with a resurrected body. But then there were others. And my personal conviction, if we, we, this little side rabbit trail that we're going down here, is people wonder, this again flies in the face of dual covenant theology. Because there are Jews that were raised at that, at that time even, and yet there, as we're gonna see, we can go back to Romans now. Romans nine. The remnant will be saved. Well, who is this remnant? These are those that are getting saved now, but when the revival really hits is during the first three and a half years when Moses and Elijah will be presenting the gospel to this remnant that are here. All right, verse 28 and 29. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. We read Matthew 24, it says, unless the Lord returns, no flesh would be saved. Unless the Lord of the Sabbath had let us, left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. Now I should state at this point that there is a difference between the Jews that are going to be saved during the great tribulation and the church who is the bride of Christ who is residing at this time in the New Jerusalem. And it says that we are gonna rule and reign with him. But that's not the case of the Messianic Jew or the remnant here that's saved during the tribulation. Their place, their home, is not the New Jerusalem, but um, those that make it through and, and don't take the mark of the beast, they enter into the millennium. And um, so our job will be at that time to rule as ambassadors, administrators, whatever, whatever the Lord has us doing. Can't tell you what it is, but trust me, you're gonna like it, okay? <laughs> All right, so that brings us to the last part of this 30 through 33. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not see it, seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, again, as it is written, and here he quotes Psalm 
15. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19. And what Jesus does is basically gives an overview of the Jews' attitude when the prophets would try to speak to them. I think Jeremiah would be a good example because for 70, um, during his whole ministry, he had one message. Um, You've gone too far. God's gonna take you into captivity. You're gonna be in Babylon for 70 years. And they didn't like that message. There were false prophets. At the same time, there were true prophets like Jeremiah. They told the people exactly what they wanted to hear. Don't worry about a thing. Everything's gonna be just fine. And they liked that, and that's what they listened to. Problem is, it wasn't the truth. So now, the Lord is gonna tell a parable about this in, I'm sorry, it's actually Luke chapter 20. The parable of the vineyard owners, and it's basically an overview of chapter nine and 10. So let's pick it up in verse nine. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went away into a country for a long time. That would be the Lord. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might give him some of the fruit from the vineyard. But the vine dresser beat him, sent him away empty-handed. Jesus is gonna say a little bit later, which of the prophets didn't you kill? Isaiah, we think, was sawn in two. Um, Again, he sent another servant, these would be the prophets, and they beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him and cast him out. So prophet after prophet is coming, and they're not listening. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I know, I'll send my beloved son. So after the greatest prophet, Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, he was a forerunner. What was his job? One job. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was the one who would say, there's the Messiah. That's the one you want to follow. What shall I do? I'll send my own beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him, but when the vine dresser saw him, they reasoned among themselves saying, there's the heir, let's kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they had heard this, they said, certainly not, because they knew that he was talking to them. And he looked at them and said, well, what is this that is written? And here he quotes Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, everybody in the world has one or two options when they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's not three options. There's only two. And they're given to us in verse 18. He said he's the stone. And he says, whoever falls in a stone will be broken. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit comes and cuts you to the heart. And you're convicted. 
and uh, you're broken. And that's good, not bad. Because this is brokenness and you're down on your knees and saying, Lord, have mercy on me. That's one possibility. What's the other? But on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Isn't it interesting that when we read Daniel about the image, it said out of nowhere comes a stone and smites the image in its feet and it crumbles to dust and the wind blows it away and instead of the um, image being there, it says a great mountain arose, it is a kingdom and it'll last forever and ever and ever and ever. So here are the two options, no matter what the world says or um, what different um, philosophies or religions or isms that are out there, there's really only one way to heaven. No other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. I don't think I've asked for an amen yet tonight. Only one way, and that is very... um, um, Well, it's despised today. And we're, we're, the, the church is really one of, without getting too sidetracked here, is really the biggest obstacle that the globalists have right now. Reset 21 is coming up. And then what's that all about? A one world government. And who's standing in the way? In order to have a one world government, you also have to have a one world religion. That means you gotta put down your doctrines that you're holding to, you stubborn Christians, saying that Jesus is the only way. No. The Pope is saying that you can be Muslim and still go to heaven. doesn't really matter. And now you have, we have to put all these things aside or you die. Those are the options. And so it, it puts us in a place, of talk about not being politically correct, but how can we change that? We can't. Why? Because we stand upon the solid rock of this word. Um, doctrines change. Uh, churches become watered down because they get away from this book and as a result become complacent and instead of having absolutes, uh, they're open to a one world religion. So the Lord pretty much has to come and take us out. All right, I better get into chapter uh, 10. So let's go back to Romans. Chapter 10. All right, we have seen the present state of Israel. They are lost, and that is their condition today. They are lost just as the Gentiles are lost. The reason is that Christ is the end of the law of righteousness. Now Paul turns from the sovereignty of God to the responsibility of man. We begin uh, this thought in the concluding verse of uh, chapter 9, The first verse of chapter 10 tells us, uh, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Again, so much for dual covenancy. There are responsible, you see. They are responsible to God. Our Lord had said to them, and this is quoting 19 of Luke, for the day will come upon you that your enemies shall cast a trench around you encompass you around and keep you in on every side. We're talking about um, the 10th Roman Legion here in 70 AD. 
and they shall lay even you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another, that's a reference to the temple, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Implication is they should have known Daniel. They should have been looking for that man riding that colt down on Palm Sunday. Uh, That is the condition of the nation to this day. They are surrounded by nations that want to push them into the sea. Why? You can blame the Arab, you can blame Russia, you can blame everybody, you can blame God if you want to, because he says the reason they are in such a state, unable to have peace, is that they did not recognize the time of their visitation. So Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And so let's dive into chapter, now we'll do two through nine. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. I mean, going to the Western Wall and um, watching them pray. Um, with, with, of course, with their heads covered. And when they pray at the wall, I mean, they're really getting into it. But also when you go into um, their library, which is just uh, a little bit to the north of where the Western Wall is. Um, boy, if you, if you get those um, Orthodox Jews dancing, they can really get down. <laughs> and um, it's a happy dance. And so we we read here, they have a zeal for God. They certainly do, but not according to knowledge, not according to the king of the Jews. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, which is Jesus and the gospel, and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law, and here it is again, now we're quoting Leviticus. The man who does not, who does those things shall live by them. But the righteous of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near, you even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. In other words, it's in their head, but not in their heart. I like to say that a lot of people are gonna miss heaven by 18 inches. That's how far it is from here to here. They have a head knowledge, a religious knowledge, but they don't have a personal born again relationship with the Lord. And that's what he's saying right here. They confess it with their mouth, but it's their heart, it's not in their heart. Verse 10, for with the heart one believes to righteousness and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. For the scripture says, here we go again, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. This is such a comforting verse because just think for a couple minutes of some of the things that you would never want God to openly show about your life. And here it's telling us that that's never going to happen. That when he forgave you of your sins, 
He said, I'm going to separate them as far as the east is from the west, and I'm not going to remember them anymore. And it says here, he adds to it, will never be put to shame. Verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is over is rich to all who call upon him. Now, let's put up uh, on the screen the um, Roman road. And you'll notice in verse, I think 13 is up there, right? I believe this is one of them. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever calls, that includes everybody. How then shall we call on him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in him who who they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And so the point is here, in order for a person to get saved, they have to call upon the Lord. But somebody's got to tell them to call upon the Lord. That's your job. If we go back to Ephesians 4, where I left off, the next verse says that he's given some to be pastor teachers. It says, for the equipping of the saints to do the work of ministry. So what do you do? You come to the Wednesday night Bible study. Well, what did you do? Well, we went through Romans 9 and 10. What did it tell us to do? It tells us that they need to hear, and we need to hear it from up here as we just teach through the word. It equips you so that your sphere of influence and whoever that might be, you don't hold your tongue. It says, how will they hear unless somebody tells them? So we're talking about witnessing here. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, now quoting Isaiah 52, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. What does the gospel mean? Good news. You want some good news? You're gonna stand before God someday and he's going to look and you're gonna be in no shame. All your sins will be forgiven and um, those who bring the gospel, it says in Daniel 12, those who turn a sinner to the Lord will shine like the stars forever and ever and ever. All right, we close out the chapter with Israel rejects the prophets, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Now he quotes Isaiah again. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? All right, here's a famous verse. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's vital that we come to Bible studies, vital. It's vital that you have your own time in the word because faith is supposed to be growing and the only way it can grow, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing again from the very book that we're studying. No programs, God's word and uh, is sufficient. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out into all the earth and the words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. Well, that's an interesting verse. Here is a Jewish person who's jealous of a Christian. That's what this is saying. I'm going to provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will anger you by a foolish nation. 
Well, what's up with that? Okay, people get to know you, and they're not saved. And, um, oh, hypothetical situation, you lose your wife, or you lose your husband, or you lose a son, or you lose a daughter. And, you know, even the unsaved have sympathy, and their heart, their heart will go out to you. And um, I say, how, how are you doing? Is there anything I can do to help, help out? And, no, we're fine. What do you mean you're fine? Well, we, we believe to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord. <laughs> and the older they get, the more you want that. And so the unbeliever is thinking, man, if I lost my wife or if I lost my husband, I, I would never be handling it the way you're handling it. I mean, I'd, I'd be just splattered all over the place. And so what does it mean to be provoked through jealousy? Well, you have peace in the midst of a storm that would do most people in, but you're handling it just fine. It's not that we don't grieve. Of course we grieve. But it says not like those who have no hope. There's a difference and that we have this, this blessed hope. All right, let's finish it out. So um, non-believers are actually jealous of us because of who dwells in us. But Isaiah is very bold and said, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was manifest to those who did not ask for me. We often say, well, I found the Lord. No, you didn't. He found you. He went to seek and to save that which was lost. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. We'll leave it like that, and we will pick it up with this section on Sunday morning. I'm looking forward to this one very much. Let's stand, and we'll close in prayer. Uh, Lord, we thank you tonight uh, for Romans chapter 9 and 10, and um, uh, the, the blessed hope that we have I pray you'd use it, Lord, as we read to increase our faith, um, to be bold in our witnessing, to not compromise with dual covenant theology or, the, or any false doctrine, Lord. And so we're just grateful uh, for your Holy Spirit and we're grateful for the word that you've given to us. Help us not compromise in any of these areas and Lord, just give us boldness as Paul also prayed for boldness to speak as he should. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.